Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Lawrence Taylor speaking, and this is Reflection on the Scripture. So glad that you could join with us today. I'm the pastor at Kenilworth Baptist Church, and every week we do a podcast called Reflection on Scripture, where we take a passage of Scripture and try to apply it to some contemporary situation. Well, uh, the passage I'd like to look at today is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so we have a early reflection on what is known as the doctrine of inspiration. There is a great divide among Christians today. In Europe, Christianity is dead. It's about finished. But in the United States, two major divisions, especially when it comes to theological issues, are those who hold to the integrity of Scripture uh, and those who reject the notion of divine inspiration. That scripture is not divine inspired. Now, they believe that uh, historians, I should say when I say they, historians believe that this notion of divine inspiration of Scripture really had its origins with the rise of the fundamentalist movement in the United States. Uh, In an article published in 2019 in the New York Times, uh, uh, and the uh, title of, of the article is The Day... Christian fundamentalism was born. Uh, It reads, but for many Americans, modernity was exactly the problem. As many parts of the country were experimenting with new ideas and beliefs, a powerful counter-revolution was forming. And in some of the nation's largest churches and Bible institutes, a group of Christian leaders anxious about the chaos that seemed to be developing collaborated and came together to point out the urgency of this issue. They knew that the time was right for a revolution in American Christianity. In its own way, this new movement, fundamentalism, was very, every bit as important as the modernity it seemingly resisted with remarkable determination. So in other words, um, the the so-called fundamentalist movement that began in this country in 1919 was a response to what many historians refer to as modernity. Uh, What they mean 
is that people were beginning now to look at progress in terms of uh, technology, science, and also in terms of ideology and thought. They wanted to move away from the old-fashioned traditional ideas. So in 1919, a group of theologians, ministers, evangelists came together, and it wasn't in Louisiana or Mississippi or what is traditionally referred to as the Bible Belt, but they came together in Philadelphia. That's right. Came together in Philadelphia. And this movement of fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, began there. Now, there were certain tenets of the faith that this movement held to. One, of course, was the doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture, that the Scripture was divinely inspired. Two, they held to the blood atonement of Jesus. Uh, three, the Trinity, triunity of God. Uh, they um, also believed uh, in eternal damnation and judgment, and of course, eternal life in heaven. And those were some of the basic tenets of fundamentalism in order for you to qualify as a fundamentalist. Now, they added things later on, such as the second coming of Christ, uh, the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Um, and, and, and so they began to augment some of these ideas and bring them all. They weren't all there in the very beginning. Uh, but let's note the movement was called the fundamentalist movement. Uh, you don't, they don't use that term today. The term that they use is evangelical. Uh, well, let me explain, first of all, why they don't use fundamentalism anymore. Although that's the term that was used in uh, 1990. Uh, it's because fundamentalism has been I, identified with Islamic extremists. And so Christians who are conservative in their beliefs dropped that term fundamentalism, even though they used it before it was applied to Muslims. Christians were the first ones to be called fundamentalists. But since now it's ascribed to Islamic uh, people who are, we call them fundamentalists, Christians don't use that term anymore. Uh, Nevertheless, I mean, they use terms like evangelical. But the problem with evangelical is that that is just too broad. Uh, and you can believe in many of the tenets and not identify yourself as evangelical. Like myself, I don't want to identify as evangelical because there's just too much of the baggage that goes along with it. Uh, so, for instance, if you're evangelical, they expect you to be a member of the Republican Party. Uh, now it's so bad, if you're evangelical, they automatically identify you as a supporter of Donald Trump. Uh, and so all that's just uh, uh, nonsense. That's why I don't identify with that term evangelical. Uh, 
Um, I just refer to myself as a biblicist, a person who is committed to the Bible. But uh, let's know that historians wrongfully, wrongfully say that this was the beginning of this movement when people committed themselves to uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, that is just not the case. By the way, let's keep something in mind. In 1925, uh, in, in Tennessee, there was one of the most important cultural trials in American history, and that was the Scopes trial. Uh, John T. Scopes, a biology teacher, uh, was arrested. And you know what he was arrested for? He was arrested for teaching evolution. And that is right. He was arrested for teaching. Now you're arrested if you don't teach it. Okay. But then <laughs> he was placed under arrest for teaching evolution because that was against the law in Tennessee. The notion was creationism. Uh, and that is, when I say creationism, that's Genesis. Creationism is just a fancy way of saying you believe in, in the book of Genesis. Well, um, this uh, t teacher, John T. Scopes, uh, refused to uh, subscribe to that. And uh, he insisted on teaching Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. So he was placed under arrest. Big trial pursuit. Uh, it's uh, called the Scopes Monkey Trial. And the reason why it's called the monkey trial is because a monkey trial means that the verdict has already been decided even before the trial. You know, like when Jesus was put on trial, that was a monkey trial. But they had already decided what the verdict was going to be uh, before they put him on trial. So that's the uh, a case with this John T. Scopes trial. They made a great movie about it, people. You should watch it. It was made back in the early 1960s. It's called Inherit the Wind. Spencer Tracy, you should watch the movie. It is a good movie. Now, a lot of it, of course, is fictional, uh, but a lot of it is uh, historically accurate. But the point is that John T. Scopes uh, went on trial, and, the, and two of the most powerful lawyers in the country were involved in this. Charles. Um, uh, Clarence Darrell, Clarence Darrell, one of the most well-known lawyers at the time, uh, who was an atheist, uh, and obviously he represented John T. Scopes. Um, the other one was um, um, Brian, Jennings, Jennings Bryan, uh, who ran for president uh, uh, more times than Richard Nixon, uh, and he never won, uh, and he was a fundamentalist. Um, but um, the movie doesn't use those names. They change the names. But we know who they're talking about. Uh, so in the end, John T. Scopes lost. State of Tennessee won. It was, it was in Dayton. And so people look at this episode in American history and they say that this is the origins of fundamentalism and this whole belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. It began then. That's what you will find in most American history textbooks. So today we're going to dispel that myth. 
because it is clear that in the Bible, people believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, someone may come to you and say, well, you know, how about Martin Luther? You know, Martin Luther, the, not Martin Luther King, but he didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture either. But I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, he had a peculiar idea of inerrancy. He felt that uh, some books were more inspired than others. So, for instance, the Book of Romans was at the top. He, he had a hierarchy of inspiration. At the bottom was James, the book of James. He put that at the bottom, along with the book of Revelation. Uh, he referred to uh, the uh, epistle of James as an epistle of straws. Uh, he didn't mean that in a complimentary way. So here's the guy who started the Protestant Reformation, yet he didn't hold on to uh, this uh, rigid doctrine of um, inspiration of Scripture and inerrancy of Scripture. But in our passage, it is clear that Paul did, right? Paul, who wrote 2 Timothy, his last letter, wrote in verses 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired. Now, the word inspired is a crucial word there because that word means to be, it's God breathed. God blew scriptures out. It was God who actually was the one responsible for the manufacturing of the divine revelation of God. He just used human beings and their personalities to write it down, to, to record this inscripturated revelation. But it is God who was the one who moved. And it says, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Now, no, all scripture. Well, someone might say, well, wait a minute now, wait a minute. Did they have a New Testament back then? No. So they say, ha, ah, well, that means Paul was only referring to the Old Testament. Okay, yes, yes, he was. But let us know that the New Testament is also identified later on as Scripture. It is identified, for instance, in Second uh, Peter chapter 3. It's called Scripture. And he says all Scripture is inspired by God. Therefore, note what he says. As a result of all Scripture being God-breathed, manufactured by God, it is profitable. Profitable for what? For teaching. Well, that is what the man of God should be doing, teaching the Word of God. Not teaching sociology, not teaching psychology, uh, not teaching any of those other things. He ought to be teaching the word of God. He says uh, it's uh, for reproof. And that word reproof has a number of different meanings. It could mean to, to convict, to convince, to expose, to rebuke. It has all of those meanings, and I believe all of those are encompassed in this word reproof. It's good for all of those things because it exposes the truth, but it also exposes a lie. That's the important thing about the word of God. It exposes a lie. Uh, it is uh, good for correction. Well, the word of God will correct your misconceptions about life. Uh, and 
it says for training in righteousness. So that means that uh, in terms of being prepared for the work of the ministry, you should be prepared scripturally. I think it's a shame when you have pastors who are biblically illiterate and you have so many. I mean, in seminary, now listen to this, in seminary, we were having a discussion, a bunch of pastors, and I said, um, well, Jesus was poor. Well, this pastor of a pretty sizable church, uh, Jesus wasn't poor. Jesus was rich. And I said, well, the Bible says, and he interrupted me and said, I'm not talking about the Bible. I'm talking about Jesus. I said, man, if your congregation could hear you now. Okay. I mean, I, I don't think they should just leave that church. I think they should run out of that church he's pastoring. Uh, but here it says, for righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate. So what else should you, what gives you adequacy in terms of preaching and teaching? It's the word of God, equipped for every good work. So, there we have it, that the Bible says that the Bible, that is the Bible making a claim about itself. The Bible says that it is divinely inspired by God. Now you may say, well, how do you corroborate those claims? I think one of the ways to do it is to just examine biblical prophecy. There is no book, no religious book that has the record that the Bible has. Bible predicted, for instance, and I'm talking about the prophecies that obviously have been fulfilled. Uh, the Bible predicted uh, that the Messiah would die on the cross. It, the Bible predicted in Psalm 22 that he would cry out in dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, he did. Uh, the Bible predicted in that same Psalm uh, that the soldiers who were responsible for crucifying him would um, cast lots for his garment. And they did 500 years later. Uh, the Bible predicted over 500 years that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, and you see that in Micah chapter 5. The Bible predicted uh, that Jesus would be rejected among his own people. Well, you see that 750 years before it happened in the book of Isaiah. Now, what book has that kind of record? None. I remember speaking to a relative of mine who said, ah, but those are just generic prophecies. I said, you know what the word generic means? <laughs> it didn't sound like you do. There's nothing generic about that. Uh, this is clearly specific. Uh, so that's just an example of its authority and its reliability. Uh, so the doctrine of inspiration did not begin with the fundamentalist movement in the United States. It goes back to the time of the Bible. So I hope you got something out of this, uh, and I'll see you next time.